Yes. When you're lead pastor, you don't have to carry this yourself. But uh, <laughs> still paying my dues, obviously. Uh, good morning, guys. Good morning. Hey. Um, I'm just so incredibly blessed and honored to be here today. And uh, just like getting to know Caleb and the staff, and it's just this incredible heartbeat for the city. And I love joining that, starting this youth and just seeing what God is going to do this first year. I'm just so stinking stoked to watch the way that he just, he's going to take over this year. It's going to be incredible. Very honored to be a part of it. Um, let's pray. Let's get started. Lord, we, we trust you. We trust you. Father, we trust that you want to speak individually to everybody here, uniquely to us, apart from the person that's sitting next to us. Father, would we just be available to hear what you are calling us to? what you're speaking to us. In your name, amen. 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 All right, so let's get started, huh? We've been in this series called Heroes and Villains for the past couple weeks, and a couple weeks ago, Caleb talked on Samson, which obviously I related a lot to, and uh, (laughs) right, then Lamont came, you guys remember Lamont, ain't nobody got time for that, which we're still saying at our house, it's Gage's first phrase, so thanks for that, Lamont. Then last week, Mike came and talked about Jonah and how Jonah went his own way and God wailed on him. I just came up with that joke. That's not bad. Anyway, we're continuing this, this series, Heroes and Villains, and um, we've been talking about how there's this dichotomy of man, right? That these hero and villain, a lot of times, exist simultaneously in the same person. The same person can embody both of these characteristics. And for me, I'm, I'm very drawn to the idea of heroes and villains. I'm, in, I'm like intoxicated by it. I love, I love movies about it. I love TV shows. And, and I think it's more than just me being a dude and liking comics, right? It's more than that. It's, if I look at my life and I would maybe explain what makes me me, I think that I would tend to gravitate toward these two extremes. Um, there's this kind of emotional polarity that exists, right? This, this hero that's up here and this villain. I work with youth a lot, and not always, but a lot of times, kids have a tough time identifying who they are. Like they have a tough time defining who they are. And I think it's because we as adults or parents project this idea that who we are um, is dependent on these heroic moments and villainous moments in our lives, and kids simply just don't have enough moments to relate to or to hold on to. And is that right? Is that, is that, is that right? Is that correct? Is, is our identity made up of, of these two things? And um, I did this exercise, actually, where I had to graph out the 15 most influential moments of my life on graph paper. Still exists. And uh, I found out that every single one, sure enough, was pulled toward this like catastrophic event, and how do I react to that, and how do I bounce back, and what does that mean, or, or this moment where I'm the man, and, and I did something, and it was great. This idea, there's on the top of your outline, the question, who am I, our identity, who we claim to be, is incredibly important. I realize that all of the energy, even interactions in our life, is either trying to determine or dictated by our identity, right? Everything we do, 
is either saying, this is who I am, and in light of who I am, this is what I do, or in some sort of weird way, it's asking with your life, saying, I'm going to make this decision, I'm going to enter this, I'm going to go this direction, and maybe when I do, it's going to maybe tell me a little bit more about who I am. And when things go terribly wrong, you react to that. When things go terribly right, you are confirmed and you redefine yourself and you say, that's right, that's who I am. Today we get the opportunity to study one of my heroes. You are going to love this guy. If you don't love him now, I promise you, you'll love him by the end of the sermon. We get to study the life of Peter. And Peter is just, he's my boy. Peter's like the quintessential speak first, think later, just like foot in the mouth, just total goober, right? This guy is just out loud processor. But also what I love about Peter is that he has this unrelenting pursuit with his life to ask this question, who am I? And then also in light of that, the answer to who am I? What does that mean for my life? So we very easily could be studying somebody with this like crazy internal filter, being like, oh man, I wonder what they're thinking. Nope. If Pete's thinking it, he's saying it, right? And we, we get to follow him in this journey of, of asking this question and, and learning. So a um, little bit of background. You probably heard Caleb talk about it. But in this time, young Jewish boys would study the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They would study the Torah from about age six to about 12. Okay, And then you would just study like crazy, and then you'd be tested on the content. Um, so not like a Scantron, multiple choice test. Um, they would ask you a question, and then you, in turn, would respond with a question, right? So they'd say, what's two plus two? And you wouldn't say four. You'd say, what is the square root of 16? Which I know is right. I looked it up backstage, by the way, <laughs> right? Uh, but this would show your ability to teach, okay? Your, your ability to hear, understand, comprehend, and then also to bring up another angle. Jesus uses technique all the time. People would ask him questions, and he would respond in a question, and it would be able to highlight a different perspective or truth, right? So you take the test, the best of the best of the best, best of the best, who loves that movie? Best of the best, thank you, uh, would be selected to follow a rabbi. That was like the ultimate honor, if you were a 1600 sat right, you get to follow a rabbi. You were showing promise. And everybody else, they say, thanks for everything, but you need to go back to where you're from and just get in the family trade, okay? So Peter's from Bethsaida, this little town in Galilee, and Bethsaida doesn't have too much going for it, right? It's just podunk. It's like being from Westminster, right? It's just, <laughs> I mean, just call it what it is, Right? A lot of Little Caesars in Bethsaida, right? A lot of pawn shops. It's just, it's the way that it goes. So Peter comes down from Bethsaida, takes the test, and they say, thanks for everything, but you're not one of the best of the best. You're not even close. Uh, you need to go back to Bethsaida and be in the family trade, which is a fisherman, okay? Another important piece of advice. At this time, Jesus, who is the Son of God, here living on earth, Jesus is a rabbi at this time, and he's got a lot of hype surrounding him, right? People are pumped on Jesus. Got it? All right. That's a little bit of background. We pick up Matthew 4 and verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, 
Simon, he's named Simon right here, stay with me, who is called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. One of the better reasons to cast a net into the sea, from what I've been told. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Okay, so this seems a little crazy, right? It seems a li- and maybe a little bit impulsive, but still remember, the best of the best of the best get selected to follow a rabbi. Okay, so if you're working at Little I don't mean to rag on Little Caesars. I love Little Caesars. But if you're working at Little Caesars and Harvard calls and says, you're in, yeah, you got a little bit of draw to your monogrammed pizza wheel, right? All of your money's in your stuff, but you're like, no. This is game time. This is where I'm going. Do you recognize this as an opportunity? So they bailed and they said, we're following Jesus. We're going. Okay, also, I just mentioned that his name's Simon right now. And you're saying, hold on now. Is this a two-week series? No, it's not. <laughs> John 1, 42. Then Andrew, who is Simon's brother, brought Simon to meet Jesus, looking, oh, I love this, looking intently at Simon, Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, Your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas. Translated Peter, but Cephas means rock. And this is important to, I love that intently part, right? So he's looking at Peter and he's, he's naming him this. It's not like he's just going down the row of disciples and saying, uh, fish lips, short stuff, and rock. That's not it. Yeah, rocky, that's not it. Um, it's this idea of intently looking at, at Peter and naming him. That's important for later. So for me, if I'm going to learn this idea of identity, if I'm going to follow somebody's journey to answer this question of who am I, I need to relate to this person, right? If I'm going to say, yeah, I want to follow Jesus's journey and finding out who he is, I'm like, okay, that sounds great, but I've got a couple moments in my life that are not so Christ-like, uh, what do I do then, right? We need to identify with this person that we're following. Um, and so those, those mishaps that we're looking for to identify with the person, good old Pete fits the bill, okay? So turn with me, Mark 8, starting in verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Okay, so in this moment, Jesus is essentially saying, this has to happen. Um, I have to be captured. I have to be arrested. The reason I was sent here to earth is to die so that you could have a relationship with God. Okay, it's saying he spoke very plainly about this. This has to happen. I have to be put to death. I have to rise again for you guys to have this relationship. Okay, he spoke plainly about this. And our boy Pete speaks up. <laughs> Check this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now I looked up on dictionary.com, which is very important, the definition of rebuke, to tell somebody off, to criticize or reprimand somebody, usually sharply. Whoops! Right. So, but next verse, verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. 
Okay, so point number one, you can write this down if you want, but don't rebuke Jesus. (laughs) Just ever. You can go ahead and bank on that one. The second point is, I know this kind of sounds admirable, but you're right. Yeah, I I wouldn't want Jesus to die, right? I would... I would want Jesus to live too. That sounds great. I'd probably say it. This is more than just wanting Jesus to live, okay? Because Peter is a nobody. Jesus is his street cred, right? Jesus is like the prom king. Like, he's hanging his hat. He's like, I'm one of Jesus' boys. They see him. They're like, oh, man, that dude's with Jesus. Like, that is who he's hanging his hat on, right? And now Jesus is saying, hey, uh, I'm Audi 5 thou. And Peter's like, yeah, I don't know about that. That sounds uh, not so high. It's like when you're playing basketball, right? And you got choosing teams and your dude who's just unstoppable is on your team. And you get to the end, there's uneven teams. And the other team's like, hey, we need one. And your guy's like, oh, I'll go. And you're like, yeah, I don't know about that. Why don't you just pump the brakes? You guys can have Carl there on the end, right? <laughs> Put the cone around his head so he doesn't scratch himself. You guys get Coney Carl. Jesus, you just pumped the brakes here. So this is every day of our lives. This is every compromise that we make, right? This is saying essentially, thanks, Jesus, like great intentions. We love it. Love where your heart's at. But I think we got this covered. I think we've got this handled just a little bit more, right? This is saying, I'll tell you what, Lord, you can have Sundays, rest of the week, I'll go ahead and handle that, right? Or you tell you what, you can even have a rooted night, right? And he's saying, my money, my time, leave, leave that. And we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I think it's important to look at and, and find. Up, there's a slide that says, where, what does it say? Where is self or comfort trumping what God is asking you to do? And again, we're not going to spend a lot of time there, but this idea of where is your comfort taking the place or more important than what God is asking you to do. And it's there and exists and it's bad and we're all guilty, but not as bad as mishap number two. <laughs> so this next mishap, this next total goofball moment is so instrumental that it is in all four of the gospels. The gospels First four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it's four different authors' written accounts of Jesus' time here on earth. This next one is so instrumental for us to learn from that all four authors included it, which I'm sure Peter's super stoked about, right? (laughs) Stinky Pete's, like, stoogiest moment is just smeared all over the New Testament. Poor guy. Sucks for him. We get to learn from it. All right, so turn... We're in verse 26, I mean, uh, Matthew 26. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Okay, so Jesus is saying, again, I will be put to death, and when I do, you guys are going to bail on me. He's talking to his disciples. Who do you think speaks up? Uh, Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Love it. It's from the heart, right? Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. 
But Peter, he's indignant. He declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds good. We're with him. Uh, Verse 69. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow is with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. So Peter's from Bethsaida, a town in Galilee, and the Galilean dialect was very obvious, right? So this is like swamps of Louisiana trying to pass off as like native Brooklyn, right? Not going to happen, okay? (laughs) Then he began to call down curses. I love it. When you're caught in a lie, you just start yelling and cursing, right? Just hope everybody leaves. (laughs) Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside, and he wept bitterly. Starting to identify with Peter a little bit more. I um, had a story not too long ago, unfortunately very similar, no real rooster, but similar. Um, I just came from a ministry, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, volleyball, and uh, one weekend I was actually going down to the pier to play volleyball, just go down, hang out, play, and I was in my closet deciding what to wear, okay? And I had my Fellowship of Christian Athletes tank top, and I had my normal tank top, and I know this doesn't seem like that big of a deal, right? It's just what I'm wearing, who, who cares? But I remember at that moment, there was this choice. Like, there's this choice. Like, what am I going to choose to represent myself? I remember it very distinctly. And I went with the, with the normal tank, right? And chose in that moment to deny the person who means the most to me in this world. Gets worse, I go down to the beach, I'm talking to people there, meet this new guy, I'd never talked to him before, small talk, and he goes, hey, what do you do for a living? I don't know why. It's a moment of weakness, but uh, I said, oh, I'm a volleyball coach. There's an element of truth to that, right? But I didn't mention the ministry, and I, I didn't even go there, and in that moment, denied the person who means the most in this world to me. A little bit later, I was talking to the locals, and they said, oh, did you get to meet so-and-so? And And I said, yeah. And they said, "Um, yeah, it sucks. His mom passed away a week ago. And I was like, oh, man. That was my rooster. I was like, dang it. Dang it. Like, who knows, right? Who knows how God wanted to use me just to speak a word of, like, love or comfort or truth to him. And instead, I denied. I just, I'd gone the other way. That's tough. That's a tough pill to swallow. It exists. Where in your life has that happened? This idea of like blatant denial, right? The idea of denying Christ maybe with with words. Maybe the idea of denying Christ with, with actions. Maybe even denying Christ with just your life's direction. Have you ever had a moment where you felt God was prompting you for a response and he just said no. And maybe even God has reached out to you through a friend or a message. Maybe even today, like God will start to tug at your heart and you're already planning your escape route. The point of the message 
today is not that you've blown it. You have. I have. We have. The point of the message is not that we've blown it. The point of today's message is that we have the opportunity for our identity to supersede all of our failures. We have the opportunity for our identity to take the place to supersede all of our failures. Matthew 16, starting in verse 13, I'm just going to go through it quickly. Um, But it says that Jesus is entering the district of Caesarea Philippi, and he's walking with with his boys. He's walking with the disciples, and he's saying, hey, who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do people say that I am? You guys are out in the streets. Who do people say that I am? And they start shouting answers, right? Like, oh, some say uh, John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say, you know, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he goes, all right, who do you say that I am? You guys spend the most time with me. Who do you say that I am? And what is maybe my favorite moment in scripture? Our boy, Peter, I can just picture this, this moment, right? Just like overwhelmed, just like staring here, hands down. He just says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus, inside of this moment, like nobody else exists, right? There's, there's nothing else. He locks in with his boy. He locks in in this moment and he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. This is it. And you are Peter. You are a rock, You are Cephas. This is who you are. He says, and on this rock, I will build my church. Focus, fixated on Christ. We find Peter in this incredibly vulnerable moment when he's asked a question. Peter, a guy who just speaks from the heart, has this moment of declaration Right, Nothing else matters in this moment. Nobody else's opinions in this moment matters. And he just declares with his life, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, complete focus on Jesus. And in that moment, because nothing else matters, Jesus is able to look at Peter and say, this is who I've created you to be. This is who I've made you to be. You are a rock. You are solid. You are passionate. It may take you a little bit longer to learn than everyone else, but man, when you do, you are unmovable. If we focus on Christ, he has the platform to declare who we are, who he's created us to be. Guys, what we do in life, it's all over the map, right? If we were to graph out the 15 most influential times, we have blown it. Right? And we've had times that have gone great. It's, it's all over. But listen, we have the opportunity to be defined by the author of consistency. He created you. He knows you. He wants to define you. Um, and what may be like the coolest opportunity by a human ever in scripture, obviously it's our boy, Peter, um, What's the, uh, Matthew 14, my little bookmark fell out. Here we go. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. 
After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Who do you think speaks up? (laughs) Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed back into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. I believe that there are two main groups of people here today. There's a number of you who are in the boat, who are still in the boat, and you're terrified. You're terrified because up until now, your life has been defined by the times that you've tried your best and done something well or the time that you've totally blown it. And it is this up and down roller coaster, and it is terrifying. That's why one day you can be on cloud nine, and then the next just like wide-eyed, right, with hopelessness, just like unable to go to sleep, head on the pillow. I know it exists. I know I was there. Listen, please listen. If you're in the boat, listen, because Jesus is saying, come, follow me. He's beckoning. He's saying, let me define you. Aren't you exhausted with this? Aren't you tired Aren't you tired of one day up here, one day the next, of this inconsistency? Aren't you tired? Let me tell you who you are. Let me tell you who I've created you to be. Come follow me. There's another group of us who have made the decision, who have said, okay, I'm in. I'm going to follow Jesus, right? We have stepped out of the boat, and we start this journey of following Jesus. And when we do, what's the first thing that happens? Right? These waves. These waves. What are the waves? The waves are fear. The waves are doubt. The waves are bitterness and unforgiveness. Maybe the waves are adultery. Maybe the waves are divorce. Maybe the waves are those parts of your life that you were just praying nobody ever finds out about. And they're big and they're giant and they're scary. But what is the glaring miracle in this story? Looking at the story, what what is the thing that stands out? What is the miracle? The miracle is that Peter is walking on water, right? He's walking on water. That's the miracle. Nobody says, hey, I can walk on water. Big deal. I can walk on water in waves. Whoa, no. He is in the middle of the miracle, If you are following Christ, we have to know, we have to trust that the miracle has already been done, right? We're in the middle of the miracle. What is the miracle? The miracle is that we have the availability to live in freedom. The miracle is that we are no longer defined by the times that we've taken life into our own two hands and blown it. Focused, fixated on Christ. 
He's able to say, this is who I've created you to be. No waves, no opinions, nothing else. This is who you are. I want to end with this. Um, I was raised by my mom, who was in musicals and operas, and so music was a huge part of my life, and I love it. I love music. Uh, still, the favorite part of a musical or movie for me is the score, right? This music that's written just to take an audience somewhere. I love it. If you've ever seen an orchestra, you know the different components, how there's like the brass, there's the strings, there's the percussion, right? There's the woodwinds and these weird like little Duck Dynasty instruments like <laughs> bassoons and oboes, like what are those? Yeah, so bizarre, but somehow they work. What I love about an orchestra is that every instrument plays its part to create a masterpiece. Do you know what I believe with full conviction? I believe that God is writing a symphony for Huntington Beach. And he wants to use us. He is using us. It says in scripture that we were knit together in our mother's womb. Knit together that we were handcrafted, like we were sculpted. That means like we were, we were God's idea, personality, athleticism, height. Everything was God's idea. And he created you. He created us to fit a very specific role in what he's writing for our city. Is that not bizarre? That means that this city, this church, is worse off, is less than, is incomplete without you. We can find like a hundred different reasons to discount ourselves and say, no, we can't because this, 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 and this. And God is saying, no, I have sculpted you specifically to fill a role in this redemptive story that I'm writing for Huntington Beach. If you're in the boat, listen. Jesus is saying, come, follow me. Let me define you. Let me tell you who I've created you to be. If you're following Christ, trust that the miracle has already been done. Finally, for all of us, ask God, what part is he asking us to play? He has created you with incredible intention. Allow him to write you into his symphony.